Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from from Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Uh, Today, please welcome our guests, Julie Barlow and John Bonneau Nadu, authors of Going Solo. Welcome to both of you. It's a pleasure to have you both. You. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Yep. Well, let's start off by you uh, both telling us your uh, background, background professionally. Okay. We are, um, it's fun to hear ourselves described as entrepreneurs. We're, we're writers um, with a writing business. We've been running for 30 years, I guess. We are, each of us, authors, journalists. But of course, we've had to branch out over the years as translators. Um, we've made radio broadcasts. We've written TV scripts. We've done quite a bit of stuff. We've taught and coached. Mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, we have 15 books together and separately and in collaboration with other people under our yep. belts. And I guess that's it in a nutshell. Um, so we're creating. How did you two meet? At university, at McGill University here in Montreal. Thursday, first class. Because <laughs> you mentioned that in the beginning of the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we were studying political science together. Very, very nice. So why did you write this book? And especially if it's kind of uh, straight from the um, past types of books you've written. I When I began as a journalist, um, I had a lot of questions. And... Um, I realized giving seminars and giving uh, giving lectures later that that I could help a lot of other people starting their businesses uh, just by learn teaching or explaining the problems I had to solve and the quick the quick fixes. And uh, one of the first hurdle I had uh, was just understanding that no paycheck would come that I had to bill. <laughs> <laughs> and that I was a business. That was a that was a, a paradigm shift. Literally, uh, it was a, a leap I had to take. And uh, because we've always been trained, we're all we're all we, all of us are told study well. You're going to get a good job. Study well. You're going to get a good job. And then when you become to earn a living as a creator, you realize there will never be a job. There will always be work. <laughs> <laughs> but right. we'll, not, we'll not get a job um, or maybe a contract, but, you know, or you'll go from contract to contract, but you're lucky if you're going to get a job. So we, we both of us, you know, we had the good fortune of Jean's father being an entrepreneur, being the founder of an engineering firm here and giving us very good business advice. And we realized that it's very unique, you know, for creators like us to develop a sort of good business sense. And that's where the book came from. And the book is really tools for people, you know, in creative fields or whatever fields. I mean, all entrepreneurs are creative in a way, but they're really like the basic tools from the beginning of the whole process of, you know, how to turn your passion into a 
into a into a business and um yeah and we were invented invited in chambers of commerce to give to speak and realized quite rapidly that the problems we faced as writers creators are the same problems that people starting a groom a dog grooming business or a consultancy or um graphic design or or Whatever, and, and whatever. Architects, anybody, architects, anybody who sends a bill. You know? they, they all have problems with basics of business, like research and financing and managing and taxes. Taxes. That's the problems are the same. The, yes, my my daily job of a writer is very different from a dog groomer, but everything around it is pretty much the same processes, really. So. Oh, I would say you're definitely both entrepreneurs because every time you launch a book, it's like a new venture. Uh, it's entrepreneurial in essence, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I once uh, wrote a column uh, because I've done 25 startups, but I wrote a column on spy novelists, uh, spy mystery novelists. I went to a conference. And so when you think about it, you have to write a plan for every one of those books mm-hmm. who, you know, to your target audience is. And you have to, uh, your product is the actual book. Then you have to figure out your, all the channels you have to go to and everything, just like um, marketing any other type of product, you have to do that. And so you become very adept at it. And I thought the formula you have in the book uh, is right on. It's uh, very much uh, appropriate and very useful for anybody who's thinking of starting a consultancy or any type of business. Um how do you define self-employed? Is it like a full-time thing? Is it a part-time thing? How well, do you define it? Self-employed is defined by tax law. So, you know, yeah. a, a person who's self-employed owns their means of production and controls their time. So, I mean, it can be anything, you know, it can be, you can be a full-time self-employed, you can have a job and also be self-employed on the side. Um, I mean, the, the book is very much written for people who, who are making a full time, making it into a full time job. Yeah. Although when you when a lot of people who begin have to begin part time because they still have to self-finance. Right. So they, they so you, you can be part time self-employed. In fact, self-employed in French, we say uh, travailleur indépendant. In France, they say that it's an independent, independent worker. worker. It's a good it's a good way of putting it. It's someone who's works but doesn't have an employer. Uh, so it's a it's a very broad category that uh, historically uh, farmers, for example, all farmers at the at the basis at the base, basic level are all self self employed. They grow stuff and they sell it and under their name or a, or a business name, then it's uh, more like aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> really, or a brand, but uh, the basic, the basis of it is is someone doing business uh, under their own name. That's the basic, basic self-employed person. Um, here at Vin University, uh, we have the only entrepreneurship major in Vietnam, and there are some universities that offer that as well. Do you think about getting a degree in entrepreneurship? Uh, is worthwhile you know, having that as a full-time degree as accountant or management? And does it limit uh, or expand opportunities by getting a full-time degree in entrepreneurship? Because you pretty much learn everything. Yeah. Um, you know, there's 
in every business, when you start, there's a there's a learning curve, there's a startup process, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you learn as you go along. Uh, personally, I feel like I would have benefited from some business, a business degree sometimes, or at least some, you know, instruction in business. I think you would save a lot of time getting your business up and running by getting your head around a lot of things ahead of time. Yeah. The, 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 it shortens the takeoff time. It all depends whether you master your trade, your basic trade yeah. or not. Like when I began as a writer, I had followed no course in journalism. So I had a long learning curve just in about the business of writing. And then, but indeed, having had a training, an entrepreneurial tra training, um, I would then have learned a lot of tricks concerning finance and and sales and tax and contract management and, a lot of stuff and, and development <clears throat> but develop again development is a is a subtle thing is i i think develop the, the what we call rnd research and development <clears throat> there's a lot to gain if you do good research around what you're doing you can get a lot of multiplying effect in what in your own business but it's almost an art you can learn some of the basics of the how you develop your idea of how you you reach out to new concepts within what you're doing but um that is that is an element that i it's is i'm not sure it's teachable that part possibly not uh, yeah, possibly not how you go from how do you develop an idea uh that will uh, for example for a writer that will make you uh, be able to uh, not just write articles but write books and maybe a documentary you know multiply um, your yeah not sure it's teachable but recognizing that idea and then knowing what to do with it yeah. that is probably that is certainly teachable and that's one of the things we explain in our in our book uh, by the way, my degree is in journalism, and I found that everything we had to do as journalists was very much applicable uh, to being an entrepreneur, yes. especially <laughs> the resiliency part uh, <laughs> of doing this. Yeah. Uh, when did you decide being self-employed is a better alternative to working for someone? And I would like my mom to listen to this because my mom <laughs> has been saying to me all these years, why can't you get a full-time job with anybody? And of course, now I'm working full-time for a university, but I'm still an entrepreneur. Well, I was employed 29 days and I resigned because I didn't like it. And I, but in fact, I became self-employed twice. The first time was, I had no choice because I was not employable. I was learning how to be a journalist and, you know, I was trying to find my way, was studying at the same time. And then seven or eight years ago, I had my little business going and, but then I, People found me interesting and offered me a job. I accepted one very great job, best magazine in French in Canada. It's my mother tongue. And after 29 days, I resigned because I said, I thought to myself, I said to myself, oh, I just did all that great stuff and now I cannot do it because I have to work for an employer. Mm -hmm. That's when I became self-employed by choice. Yeah, me, me too. I, I started out self-employed right at university because there weren't that many job options for journalism in English in this city. And got things rolling. And then I, too, was offered a job at a, at a publishing company. And I worked for two or three, no more than that, maybe six months. Um, and the problem is that I had other projects that I'd started that were part of my business that I couldn't get to and couldn't 
you know, so I, I left the job and went back to being self-employed. And that too was for me, like the choice, like, like this is, this is what we want to do. And I guess what we love about it is, you know, I mean, freedom is a lot like interpreted as kind of, you know, it's more like the ability to do what we want. I guess that's what, what's important to us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, 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 as a self-employed person, you have to accept the responsibility that comes with that freedom, which is, you know, all of the billing and taxes and all the, you know, things that 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 are done by a company. Um, and then, but it's worth it for us. It's worth it yeah. because we get to do the projects we want to do. We always figure out a way to do them. So, yeah. um, and once we realized that, it gave us sort of some confidence and maybe some security. And I don't know, our parents don't care. And we, <laughs> could, and we could move our head office, you know. We, we spent yeah. six months in uh, Phoenix, Arizona in 2010. And uh, in 2013-14, we spent a year in Paris. Before that, Julie and I had been in Toronto and France again. So then we came back to Montreal. But we have this, like, we have this flexible... Uh, Flexible, um, possible that flexibility, and that was a long time before uh, video conferencing was yeah. uh, was uh, easy to do. Yeah. Um, so, but it, to us, it was it it was important, and um, uh, and what we did allowed that uh, the, the 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 way we were structured. Um, should you keep uh, your full-time employment and start a part-time? Like now looking back and of course, never knowing, you know, how much you're going to make in any particular year and the inconsistency of it, would you, would you advise most people to maybe start uh, while they're full-time for somebody else and, and then launch into it and then gain enough, uh, get enough potential clients or, put a certain amount of money away so you know that if it might take longer than you had hoped, what are you advising people who are thinking about going out on their own? Everybody who starts a business has to think when they're developing their business plan about how much backup capital or financing they have that they can last while they're in the you know, the, the learning curve of it. So there are different, in the book, we describe the different ways that you can do that. You can, some people start a self-employed business indeed when they're still working at their full-time job. It's, it's tough. I imagine it's very tough, but it does provide that security. Some people have a spouse who earns money and they can afford to, you know, take that hit for a little bit and get their business up and running. Um, I started being self-employed at a time when I had very, very little responsibilities. I didn't need much money. That's another way of going at it. But you had, a loving, you had a loving partner. I had a loving partner who didn't have much money either. So yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> we just figured out everybody has to think of that of that way. And for a lot of people, that will be some people take a package um, from their job that they that they leave. Um, you know, there's a lot of scenarios, but basically you you have to have you have to factor in enough support for the time it's going to take because nothing starts immediately and starts making you money right away. Or if it does you will inevitably meet one of the slumps that all self-employed workers meet. And, you know, you have to have a backup for that. But if you, you have, have money, but if you have money, the most important thing is go see your banker right away and borrow money or get the credit margin right away, because you are not going to get it when the money is spent. Yeah. That's a good lesson we learned. <laughs> they lend if yeah. you have money. They do not lend if you don't. So if you have the reserves, go get more immediately. 
I was wondering about that. Um, do you recommend that people have at least six months of running money uh, before they get started? Or if they have a certain amount of money and they can go get a line of credit, that they go get a line of credit uh, and at least give themselves six months? You know, what what kind of rule of thumb would you suggest that they think I, about? I think six months sounds reasonable, but it really depends on the, on the business as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you got to look at, how you, I think, you need to you need to six months to a year, I would say. Um, but I, I wouldn't want that to keep anybody like that. Hold that sort of like, sounds like a mountain, you know. I mean, there are many ways around it. And of course, as I just said, you know, if you have a spouse who who can pay the bills for a little while, you know, that that's that works too. Yeah. Um, but definitely get a credit line as when you still have money before you run out of money, because banks don't give money to people with no money. They give money to people with money already. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course. They uh, always want to make uh, it's still the fo- cheapest form of getting capital is yeah. getting from a bank than somebody investing in you. You write in the book, if you understand that being self-employed, you summarize it as don't have a job, have to work, don't have a boss, you have clients, don't have a salary, you have an income. Explain what you're telling people there. Well, we're coming from the mentality and it's an important theme in the book that you can't think like an employee when you're self-employed. So, you know, you need to, you need just to, just to flip your thinking around and think of, because one of the traps that a lot of people in creative fields falls, fall into is um, complaining about their bosses. I mean, we hear this from, from other freelance writers and, you know, feeling very powerless in the face of things um, in negotiating contracts in particular, they feel like they have to take what's given to them because that's what the boss decides. And we're trying to flip people around and say, no, you are the boss. They are the client. You are in the, in the driver's seat and you do decide, you know, what conditions you're going to work for, what you're not going to work for. And you should be going into all of your decisions, especially negotiations, remembering that, you know, you're the boss, you decide if it doesn't suit you, and you shouldn't do it. I, when I began, uh, I would I began freelancing uh, to, to, totally inexperienced, uh, and uh, was studying at the same time. It took me about three years to make a first invoice. So I had been a freelancer for three years and made an invoice on the third year, which means for the first two years I was thinking, my whoever it is will pay me. <laughs> And eventually they did because they were looking at their own books and said, oh, this guy didn't bill us. We should pay him. <laughs> but so it, so that's it. You, you do not have you do not have you're not going to get a paycheck. You're getting a check for what you bill because your relationship with your client is contractual and it's not a it's not a uh, it's you're not going to be unionized. You're not going to be a, a pro- oh, if you're a certain category of uh, self-employed, for example, an actor, you will be protected by a sort of general contract that's negotiated between the union of actors and the film industry. But within that contract, you're still self-employed. It's just a it's just a general contract that's negotiated. But th- that's an exception. It's not the rule. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, and um, it's still such an unpredictable place to be. In the book, you recommend before launching your consultancy that you have a set of objectives. 
Uh, please tell us about defining them and then should the person have a written business plan and a financial forecast as well? Okay. The, the, the written big formal business plan and financial forecast is useful is useful really if you're looking for the for partners or an investor or a, a lender. Um, um, financial forecasts can be uh, quite simple if you're you're not looking for these things. The the basic of the business plan. It's important to have a business plan, but it's really five questions. It's 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 what you want to offer and what for the purpose you have. For what price? Who are you going to sell it to? And how are you going to pay for yourself before you start generating income or sufficient income to be to be in the and uh, to get out of the red? That's pretty much the basic of the business plan. And I think what for is the most important question, really, because the minute things are going to start going well, you're going to have too much work, and then you're going to have to select. And you're going to want to orient your choices in function of the purpose you have, the goal. You're not going to, the example I like is you want to start a school of, of social dancing. Well, you're not going to choose your clients, your location, uh, uh, whether you want to start a franchise of business school or win the Olympics of, uh, of uh, social dancing or, or start a franchise of social dancing or create a shoe for social dancers. You're not going to choose any of the choices you make is going to be different depending on your purpose. But so at the beginning, it's, it's legitimate to be not clear about your purpose, but it's something that's got to be defined fairly quickly. How, how do you know if you're cut out to be on your own? Because I think a lot of people, it might not be the best fit for them. Yeah. I think it's I think it's pretty simple. I think that the people who are cut out to be on their own are the people who don't wait around to be told what to do in general. And if you are a person who's waiting for a structure, who needs a structure, who needs people to tell you how to organize things and what to do and what your project should be, then you're not cut out to be on your own. I mean, I, 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 if I think of all the people I've met that have been successful over the years in all different kinds of businesses, it's because they know what to do and they know when to do it, or they know when to go and ask. But at any rate, yeah. they they are people who who aren't waiting around for 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 taking orders. And one of the distinctions we make between you know what I was speaking about earlier people thinking about their bosses versus people thinking of themselves as the boss, that's exactly what it is. And the people who are waiting around inevitably get in our business at any rate, inevitably get exploited by, yeah. by their, if they, if they don't, if they're not proactive and project driven. Autonomy would be the key word. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. If you're autonomous, uh, that is capable of thinking, um a bit out of the box but on your own uh and figure it out figure it out you 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 have a good chance and being organized is key yeah um, and, and you know i've seen a lot of very talented writers i've seen their careers as freelancers um implode because they can't organize things and and people think of us in particular of creative people as you know free spirited living by the moment but oh my gosh we have to be organized to make it work 
Folders. Folders. (laughs) Folders. Excel sheets. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think you have to be very disciplined, uh, as I found over the years, to be out on your own. Uh, Do you agree with that? Yeah. 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 Discipline is another. uh... Yeah, certain amount of discipline, but at the same time, you have to be open to things. You know, you have to know when to stop. You have to know when to let up. You have to know. You have to take holidays. You have to know when to take the take your foot off the gas pedal. You know, um, in order to that opportunities come. It's important. But I, I've known like um, a lot of people have gone into uh, especially consulting and they get one big client. It could be the, even their own uh, former employer. And then they don't look for other clients. And when the gig ends, then they're panicked because they have no income coming in uh, on it. And so they're not used to actually having to go out there and do the business development. And while you have the one, you got to start generating more clients and end up taking more people on than you normally should than you would normally only because you don't know when these things are going to end do you find that being the case absolutely like and and if you have one client and you're too dependent on it then something goes wrong as you said then then you are kaput (laughs) the real security is having to me to personally for me the real comfort for example as a journalist three or four Three or four that yep. are that give me maybe one main one, but two or two or two or three that I keep and not the back burner, but mm-hmm. active, but not as much. But I know I can. If the big one goes down, I can I can crank up the other ones. I just have to say yes. More. And and we don't always choose the systematically choose the highest paying people either. No. We're looking for, um, you know, running a business is not just about getting the most money per hour at the moment. We have people who are regular clients. We have people that I can call up and ask for work when I need it to fill a spot. They're not the best paying people, but they're always there, you know? So there's a real variety of things that you need to keep it going. And you need that overlap. You need other clients that you can kick in when a big client stops, you know, or seizes up for whatever reason. It's happened to us. Some of our biggest clients have, um, you know, shocking things happen and People change their jobs too. You know, you can develop a relationship with somebody at a certain company and off they go. And the person who replaces them is not interested in your work. I mean, it happens a lot. So you need to have that overlap and flexibility. And it's all about building relationships and keeping those relationships up with yeah. a variety of people. So it's important. Sometimes I have a client, uh, for example, I have good, very, a very high paying client, very prestigious. And I have another one that's Quite good, but doesn't doesn't pay as much. But actually, the one that doesn't pay as much is quite quite good because it takes me no time to do the work. Yeah. So in the end, uh, it's a factor of of, uh, and we're we're coming here into negotiating. But price is not necessarily necessarily the only thing that you that you that you uh, that is important when you consider a client it's also how much work it will take to do the same yeah, amount of yeah. the same result and and all all of this has to be factored in and um uh but keeping a couple is is important at least a couple but that's also why when you count your uh, your unit price or your hourly price when you figure it out you must not count it on the basis of 40 hours a week because your billable time is not 40 hours you have to do all these other things <laughs> financing, managing, and all that. That takes time in the week. So you have to work your productive time, your actual time that where you're getting billable is about two-thirds of your time at the most. You always have to bring in a third of the time that's going to be all the other functions of your business. And if you neglect them, you're going to 
in a in short order or long order, you're going to have trouble. So you have to keep keep maintaining that third of that one third of your time doing that stuff and doing it well. And in fact, the better you do it, the more you earn and the longer you last. Mm -hmm. You recommend before launching, talking to your potential customers, how should you approach them? What do you say? And do you write them first or do you call them? Well, the the ways of approaching people have changed, you know, and I would say it depends on their age. Younger customers, you would text them sometimes today, email them or call them. You know, it depends on social networks, social networking. Yes. Um, Yeah, I would recommend definitely, definitely, definitely reaching out to you. Um, The kinds of questions. I mean, you need to have a good feel for whatever market you're going into. And the best way to do that is to talk to um, potential clients or, you know, competitors in your field and ask about the prices and the conditions and you know you pick up all the knowledge that you need to be able to make your business plan essentially uh to anticipate how much time you'll need to get going um you know what the pros and cons are of your, of, of any field that's when conventions are very useful and uh i i, I cannot I, I would advise anyone starting Go attend a convention in the field, whatever it is you feel you want to be. Or or that, networking in any way, but yeah. certainly, yeah. That's when you meet peers, you develop personal relationships, even with competitors, yeah. but or potential competitors, and you develop ties. And, and the, the friendlier people are, the easier it is to approach them and ask for either a favor, for information, mm-hmm. quite sometimes detailed. And and compet- I found compet- potential competitors like other journalists very useful when I began. The yeah. the the best ones were were the I realize now were the ones who had been asking questions when they were beginners. And one of the keys is that and is, and I'm always happy to help out young journalists who come to me uh, and who may be considered competitors because it's great to have people that you can refer clients to when you don't have time to do work for them. And that's an v- added value to me as a as a writer, the fact that I have this network and that people can call me. If I can't work, I can find someone for them to work, you know. Um, stuff comes back to you, you know. You recommend somebody for a job, they'll probably think of you when the other job, when another job comes back that they can't do. And um that's a it's a it's a it's a great way to what do you typically keep for a referral fee if you send them a contract, how much do you ask because you've made that referral? Never thought that I never could thought ask. I would ever ask for money for a referral, <laughs> ever. Um, I I feel like we have a moral bond that, you know, something will come back to me at some point. Um, they'll, you know, it's about expanding my community among the writing community as well. So no, I would never I, I suppose it's a practice in some businesses, but definitely not in ours. Um if someone uh, asks me for an idea that they want to propose to someone, there I'm going to ask yeah. for a cut on their on sure. what they do. Um, but um, in terms of exchanging uh, contacts with other people, I've benefited from it, and I consider that I yeah. give back to the community. Uh, what are the biggest mistakes you've made, and what have you learned from them uh, uh, going on your own? Yeah, I guess. I just finished writing an, an opinion piece that'll be coming out on how to avoid bad clients <laughs> and, you know, eight ways to avoid bad clients. And I've learned over the years from experience. And one of the biggest mistakes that you make, as particularly when you're a, a younger professional in any field is, you know, are you a little desperate for a contract and you're willing to say yes to things that maybe aren't 
a good idea and are going to be worth less in the long run than you think. And I had a I had a very lucrative um, ghostwriting project that I said yes to, and I ignored my own advice. The way to avoid bad clients is to think ahead of time and make sure one of the first things you have to do is make sure they're, that their expectations are realistic about what you're going to do and that they understand what they want from you. And I just ended up with a client who wanted to write a kind of book and had no idea how to do it and and didn't understand the process and wouldn't let me do my job. And it just turned into a whole bunch of stress for, you know, a very good fee that in the end, I wish I hadn't, I wish I hadn't taken. Um, but that kind of thing, learning to spot those kinds of bad clients um, upstream that comes with, 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 um, with time, you know, you learn to beware of flattering language. You learn to beware of people who, who don't want to nail a contract down too quickly because that's always a sign, you know, they're like, okay, let's see how things go. Whenever anybody says to me, let's see how things go. I know it's a bad Walk idea. Walk the other way. Or, <laughs> or or unrealistic expectations. For example, that was the case. Uh, a client that comes to you and says to us, for example, it wants, do you want to ghost write a book for me? Oh, and what is it? And they say, and they start saying that their book is going to be a bestseller, selling that will be on the New York Times list and will sell 300,000 copies. And and the answer to and, and what we have to right there, we have to stop them and say no. You, this is not the reason why you're going to write your book because it's very unlikely that it will be on the New York Times bestseller list and I don't want to have that problem. But you see, someone who's a, a, a consultant in uh, home design will have these these people who have these completely unrealistic expectations about the renovations that they want to do or the value it will add to their house. And if, as a designer, you don't correct that expectation, it's going to be a catastrophe because you're going to have to run into trouble. So, and, and, and I, like Julie, I have that my worst problems, I've been not trusting uh, my instinct and going into an assignment with a client who was completely unrealistic. Or a client who was a friend, because you can oh. get into a trap there when, yeah. when, when your friend, uh, that, that's never a good idea. You always have to keep things professional, always. And you learn, you learn that in time. It avoids a lot I, of time. I've experienced both. I hired a friend one time to work uh, and that worked out badly uh, and ended up having to fire this friend um, because they weren't as hardworking as I thought they would be. And I think you're right about uh, trusting your gut because when your gut is screaming and saying, no, 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 do not work with this person. uh, Because at one time worked with someone who who had written a book uh, her own autobiography. And she said, look, you know, I want to know, you know, what are you guaranteeing me in terms of publicity, you know, that you're going to get me into these publications and so forth. They go, there's no guarantee. I don't control these publications. And you knew right away that one, they didn't really know much about what they were buying, uh, which is the worst type of customer, right? Somebody doesn't, hasn't bought what you're selling before. And uh, two is, these like unrealistic expectations that you have some control over things that are impossible, like getting them uh, onto the New York Times bestseller list, just ludicrous. Every writing client comes with expectations and questions, and but if they are open to discussing that and really open to understanding what the how right. it works, a whole different thing. But if they if they persist in this, you know, and are not listening to you, trying to explain the realities of the business. 
um, then that's a problem. And that that would apply to every business, you know, every self-employed person on earth. Yeah. You know, it's whether you're a, you're a caterer or, you know, a shoe designer. I mean, people have to listen. And if they don't listen, it's not good. Or a client yeah. in our, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, or a client that wants you to do something that that is not a, that is not what you want to do. Yeah. If if yeah. you're if you're a hairdresser and they want you to groom their dog, it's no. <laughs> <laughs> But as a writer, as a journalist, I cannot do uh, uh, write publicity no. uh, for uh, for someone on which I just did a profile. It's not the it's not it's against the ethics of of the business. It's no. But. You have to be able to say no, and saying no sometimes is hard. And especially if you get if if money hasn't been coming in lately, or you're light on clients, or somebody offers you something great, and you say, you know what, I, I I can make this work. I can make this work. And exactly. yeah, and you're deluding yourself to thinking thinking that hence why you always need to put away enough money that you can walk away from anything. Yeah. yeah. Um. You write about researching your competitors. What kind of information should you be looking for? Oh, um, I'm sorry. If you're researching competitors, oh, competitors, uh, I would say that um, uh, you want to know you want to know what it is they do exactly, uh, and you want to know if uh, if what they have uh, if what they have really is 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 good is whether their clients are satisfied. You know, so um, that's a very important item. You want to know how much they charge because that gives you a good idea of what the market is. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, at the beginning of my career, I certainly was, you know, very bluntly asking people how much things paid. And 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 that, that gave me a good idea of what the sort of upper lower end of, of writing fees were. But you have to understand also what they actually sell. For example, if you want to go, uh, you want to do make documentaries. Well, your competitors are other producers, but you may have the illusion that their business is producing documentaries, but it's not. Their business is selling rights. Producing is secondary. Producing new stuff is secondary to the core business of theirs, which is selling rights. Production feeds the rights that they sell. So their business is developing a catalog of rights. So... That's what it is about investigating competitors, and and sometimes it's it's just about reading, um, reading the the your your business journal in your own business, and and reading articles about about other people, and understanding what they actually do, and what they actually do is not necessarily what they appear to be. Yeah, sometimes you have surprises. Yeah. So. In the book, uh, you talk about revising your business plan. How often should you update it? So once a year, every six well, months. I, I, think, I think it's like a will. Yeah. Whenever, I mean, whenever your situation changes. Whenever you need it. So I mean, you were talking about you know the fact that as writers we we are creating business plans all the time, and, and in fact, with each project and each book, it it is a little bit of a new business plan. So it's sort of when you need it, but you're not. I think you have to remember we had a. We had um, a friend we were working with at one point who was a business school graduate who who was a little bit like too focused on the business plan. And we we found ourselves spending a lot of time 
creating business plans for for different kinds of projects that we wanted to develop. And we stepped back at one point and had to say, you know, we're not getting paid to develop business plans and to refine our business plans. That's not how we're making money. We have to we have to tone it down a little bit and just focus on what we really need. So it's more more or less a as needs basis for us. Mm-hmm. In some businesses, I imagine it's probably a good practice to do every once or twice a year, I would say. But again, depends on how many how how quickly things change in your business as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's when do you when do you do the when do you do a reckoning of the, the situation? Yeah, once a year. Yeah, maybe. once a year. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what I do myself. I look at it once a year, more like at the end of the year into the next year. In the book, you mentioned different options about where to work from a home office to a cafe. What what do you do and what do you recommend for someone starting out, especially, I guess, because you're watching your cash flow as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, the, the, the you know, the basic things about the office, you need to have your equipment around you. You need to have a certain amount of detachment especially if you're working from home um we have here an, an office that we designed specifically for what we do we put quite a bit of money into it because we felt well we needed to define a space that was separate from where our kids are um but you know each each office each business has to decide what's important to them for us it's not important to have um a fancy place where clients come because our we don't bring clients here very often but for some businesses, you know, I don't know, um, lawyers or, or engineers, people in those sorts of fields, they do need to have a certain standing. They, they have to have something that looks, you know, looks like they're successful. So they're probably better off to spend a little bit more money on the office. But I would say that the most important thing for us is, you know, having a closed door. Um, it's probably the most important feature of the office for 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 me, and- I I personally don't believe in the office le- the the um, the no office work. I I've yeah. never I have never met someone who fully who fully does business uh, without a fixed spot. Fixed spot. Yeah. Uh, I've I I I have yet to meet that person. I I think that that there's a fantasy about that idea, but I don't think it exists really. Sometimes you do need to get out of the house and change your change change the air, and you know it's pleasant to go. I have a reading to do. I can go to the library to to do library mm-hmm. or to a cafe to do it, you know. But I come back to the office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need you need some kind of predictability in your environment, yeah. I think. Uh, as you're starting your business, what kind of website should you develop? Should it be a template from someone like GoDaddy? Uh, or have a designer make something unique, and how should you? How much should you think about spending on this? Well, the first question is asking whether you do need a website. Um, sometimes uh, social networks will do the job, um, and it depends also what kind of website you. I mean, we're at about our sixth, fifth, or sixth website. Fourth or fifth? I don't know. Oh, and you know, the first one, one we had was a completely big stable website the one the type you did in 2002 and we evolved to uh, the present version and we almost went to a, a selling website that was with all all sorts of widgets swinging and and then we decided no we want we want a more of an interactive one we spent what three thousand dollars designing it 
Yeah, we we do hire somebody because we needed we have special needs, and I guess that's the answer. I mean, if if you you have to decide what your website is bringing you. In in the end, people can spend, um, and you know, a sort of endless amount of time and money on a website, but what does it bring you? And as our business has become and our promotion business has become more oriented towards social media, our expectations of the website have changed, and our next website won't be the same as our last website because we are more and more you know focusing on social media for a reach that said everyone i think pretty much every business needs to have a web website but you know it's 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 like everything it's like spending on your office you need to look at how important it is to spend that money there are no fixed answers on what you need um it depends on how much money you have and what it's doing for you what what the website is doing for you and well, archive. We discovered that, for example, after spending $3,000 on a website, that we needed to hire someone $1,500 a year just to ensure cybersecurity. Security. We're, we're, our website is attacked at the rate of uh, 80 to uh, 200 attackers per day. Whoa. You know? I'm not a specialist, wow. but there's people attacking it constantly from uh, uh, a lot from the United States. It varies. Turkey. Uh, China, I mean, it comes from all over. And so we have someone who handles it. And uh, in our case, we decided to hire that person the third time we were attacked. The third time, at one point, it was it went under attack and the site web went. And we realized that that was... Uh, so the, most, the more complicated and elaborate your website is, the more you're going to be under attack because yeah. people find... There's a lot of people who want to... To try to enter, it's a bit like the the the, the machines and term in in, uh, in the matrix. You know, they're they're after it and they, they try to find a way, and oh, it's terrible. So uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, I have to tell you that in Asia, shockingly to me, because I hadn't seen this in the U.S., a lot of people have been uh, using Facebook and LinkedIn as their websites. Yeah. Well, Facebook, you know, speaking of which, we're in Canada and Facebook doesn't publish media links for us at the moment. So had we relied on Facebook entirely in our, in, you know, in our present promotion, book promotion issues, we would be, <laughs> we would be in trouble. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've fallen back and we're, we're using LinkedIn quite, quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, everything's changing all the time. I mean, I think, I think Jean's words, like, I think keeping it as simple as you can, bearing in mind whatever your goals are, is probably the best, the best answer. And spreading your effort over a few web different different social media is a good idea. Although, you know, you have to be careful not to drown in too much. You can spend so many hours a day on social media. Um, it's you know you got to ask again how much what is it bringing me? How am I am I actually getting money from this? Um, and stand back every now and again and, and evaluate that. Yeah, it's. Um... You can be swallowed completely by it without generating a cent of income. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about about that, but uh, we have a question from the audience. When you're a startup and going solo, most investors avoid investing in these startups. Any suggestions on what the entrepreneur uh, should do to get investment? Hmm. Well, unfortunately, when you begin, begin, it's it's love money. Um uh, it depends a lot um, whether you're starting in a, a field that's already established or a completely new field that you have to build. Uh, 
For example, now, if you want to be a website, a, a website developer, it's pretty much established. Nobody's going to question your capacity to earn income. Um, when you, if you wanted to be a website developer 25 years ago, you had to build it. Nobody believed you, you know? So, uh, there's probably a little room for being creative. Um, we needed money at one point to finance a trip. And, um, we realized that the bank, the bank banks don't really understand the writing business. They don't necessarily understand entrepreneurs very well, you know? Um, and we realized that our copyright was was actually like an asset. The books that we've published were worth something. And we brought our publishing contracts with us and it um, helped loosen the gears yeah. a little bit at the, at the bank. Um, you, I mean, basically, you you I mean, love money is the best way to start. And otherwise, you have to be creative about what you what you own. And so for us, it's it's copyright. Obviously, we have a house as well that we could borrow on if we needed to. We have real estate that we could borrow on. Um, but. When we were starting out, it was... Um, the, uh, so your residuals, you used your residuals uh, to get lines of credit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But wow. uh, but uh, unfortunately, I know a lot of people who are self-employed. Uh, and actually, I know I, I'm a business writer. I know of entrepreneurs who have businesses with employees. It's incorporated and they still self-finance with using their credit card. So, yeah. so at one point... The, the key question for any financier who's going to lend money to you is how long will it take before you start generating cash? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is I'm generating cash already, you probably don't need an outside financier. financier. It's, it's all a matter of how long it will take and how credible you are. And those are the questions you should be working out in your business plan. Yeah. I'm a member of LinkedIn and so are you. Have you leveraged LinkedIn to build your business? And, and I get, like you probably do, lots of emails from people telling me how they could help me leverage LinkedIn uh, for businesses. Yeah, it's tricky. Jean has a huge LinkedIn community. I have a biggish LinkedIn community. And How big are your LinkedIn communities, each well, of you? 2,500 yeah, followers. I have 6,000. Um, yeah, I've got 12,000. Oh, well, congratulations. congratulations. I, I, I uh, personally, my use of social media is very one-sided and conventional. I use it as a window. And I, I, that's mostly what I do because, because I, my main business is writing for, for, as a freelancer, that's my main source of income, I would say. And so these these publications have their own website with their own followers. So I piggyback on that. So, and then I I when I when we publish a book, what we want to do is to get uh, to get uh, good visibility. And again, we we show that. Yeah, so yeah. my so, my use of it is quite quite one sided, and I don't respond well to people approaching me about all these opportunities. <laughs> But I am, you know, as part of what I do as a as an entrepreneur is to be constantly on the lookout for training sessions. And I do have one coming up for specifically for authors on getting the most out of LinkedIn. So I could swing back to you. <laughs> but um, it seems to me that we should be asking you that question. Mark. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I use LinkedIn uh, and I belong to about 60 LinkedIn groups. And when I'm marketing uh, my uh, program, I use all those LinkedIn groups and hit millions of people 
And then you see thousands of people who actually actually take a look at your posting and then a certain number who feel they're interested in whatever you're doing uh, come on and, and, and I track where I get everybody who listens to the show. And so some of that definitely helps. Uh, a great thing you write about is how to differentiate yourself in a crowded space. And you use communication, I'm using quotes, communication consultant and the McCain brothers story as examples. Please tell the audience more about how to differentiate yourself if what you do is in a very crowded field. Hmm. Well, um, in our case, uh, early on, for example, in Canada, one thing we did was to develop uh, the business of writing in the two national languages. That's quite rare. There's not many journalists or authors that write in both languages in Canada, even if Canada is officially bilingual. Mm -hmm. So that made us special. And and um, and then we when we started doing books, that capacity of uh, of broaching uh, or bridging uh, the cultural gap between French and English was also an asset. Yeah. So it was to us. Uh, a good way, but it it all depends on 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 your purpose, and I, I come back to that. If if your idea of uh, consultancy is, uh, for example, to eventually be able to work abroad, um, and not just in where you are in your your country of origin, um, you're going to have to work on on. On specific specific ideas that will be able to that will that will be useful for you, for that purpose, and so that that directs your. So does it involve learning another language? I mean, if you want to live abroad, maybe uh, if if that is your purpose, and 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 then if you if you develop a a consultancy and suddenly suddenly after twelve or fifteen hundred hours of of learning master Arabic. Then that's that's quite specific, and that will take you somewhere. But that makes you rare. So it depends a lot, a lot on your purpose. I come back often to that, but but uh, it's determinant. Uh, one thing uh, aspiring business owners struggle with, which is creativity. Where does creativity come from, and what uh, and what if? Ideas just don't come to you. How do you spark new ideas, and how do you recommend? Uh, and how do you recommend having a journal? Because you talk about that in the book. I guess the thing about creativity is that um, it comes at times that you're not expecting it, and you have to create a sort of structure, a kind of corral for it, and you you have to make sure you take time. You know, I was mentioning earlier how you can't always have your foot on the gas. Like you need to you need to to stop. We get a lot of our creative ideas when we're not precisely trying to get creative ideas, you know, on walks, even on holidays. I mean, when we're cooking, all of these things, but you need to have a place to put them and go to them when you have them. And I think that if people are struggling with creativity, it might be because they're just not, you know, creating that sort of corral for them, a journal, it can be online, it can be written. Um, but, you know, you have to get them down. You have to get them down in, in, in paper. Yeah. I get a lot of creative ideas, you know, when I'm 
strangely talking to other creators <laughs> it's crazy but but you know at conferences and things you your mind really gets going and you get a little inspired by by things that are going on or i'm reading somebody's book and thinking oh yeah like that that we could do that in this way let's get and then i have to then we have to just make sure that we we get them down and then you need to take the time you need to really respect that and set aside time which is not billing time so we tend to not want to do it but specific time to you know let those things let those things turn into a a project, make them into a project. When I read something, I'm very, very in tune. Or when I converse with Bunman, I'm very in tune with what make what this makes me think of. Yeah, I, I have a my my privileged time for for ideas is when I have breakfast. I always re- have breakfast in front of the newspaper and magazines, and I read them, and I'm active in that process. I take notes. I, I make notes of what I read and make connections sometimes. And uh, the journal is another step. The journal, Hemingway used to say, if you wait for inspiration, it never comes. Mm-hmm. You have to put yourself in a, you have to put yourself in a regular routine of doing something. And when inspiration comes, you're ready. <laughs> and, and that's, that's what it is. And, I agree with everything you've said because I, I, if I go to conferences, if I read Inc. Magazine and Fortune and Forbes, and the more I'm exposed to, the more the popcorn machine goes off yeah. and all kinds of things. And, and there are actually uh, apps that you can write your ideas on and save them to the cloud, which is another thing that I do. One of the big questions I have, and we're almost out of, out of time, is Oftentimes, people get into a new venture with a partner and usually a close friend and look at you two have been together for so long. What do you recommend in terms of upfront planning to minimize losing a good friend and or watch the business go up in flames? Oh, we say at the same time, get it in writing. Yeah, you need a contract. When, when When you're in business with your spouse... Uh, the, the marriage contract is is the basic contract of the business. So it's it's not a bad one, but um, you have to uh, you have to think uh, uh, preventively. Uh, you have to uh, think about uh, kinds of problems. Anticipate problems. Anticipate what will be the procedure if you disagree to yeah. the point that you have to separate. Which is like having kind of like a prenup, I guess, for for partnerships. I mean, I think it's a great idea, and it, people don't want to do it because you're in the sort of honeymoon of getting things going but it like like a prenup you should write down a plan for an exit plan um if i wasn't you know married to my partner i would definitely have it in writing um what you know who, who takes what when we when it doesn't work and how it's all gonna gonna work out so yeah. prevention is the best medicine how do you guys when you are diff- when you are having a difference of opinion how do you work it out <laughs> with a, with or, a, or is a it fall under happy wife, happy life? <laughs> yeah, we, that's a good question. It was yeah. we 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 fight it out. Yeah, sometimes we, uh, we, we have to trash it. it but we, uh, just, we just we have a good agreement to say what we want, be a little explosive if necessary, but never like go to bed mad. You know, like we have to get it sort of done in a pretty short time frame and we almost always figure it out it's uh it's, well that's why you're still married that's why we're still married and that's why we still write books together yeah, yeah. You, you 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 sort of have to um to recognize sometimes that um you know sometimes you 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 you, you, you 
you you let go. It's not worth yeah. fighting sometimes, you know. <laughs> strangely, strangely, like we don't like to learn. Like we don't like to like realize somebody else is right. That's really tough sometimes. It takes us a while to to get. But yeah. normally, one of us, normally one of us in that case actually is right, and we we come around to it. Um, it's negotiation. I we have we're almost out of time, so I have one final question to ask you. Uh, how is AI going to affect uh, consulting, especially the freelancer business, uh, especially p- for people like you who are writers? Yeah, I write on AI quite a bit, so I, I'm, my understanding is that um, it's affecting the, the kinds of jobs that it's seriously affecting right now are not the sort of lower end, repetitive jobs, and not the upper end jobs, but sort of stuff in the middle, um, middle management and um, scheduling is becoming very dominated by AI. For me as a writer, it's like a bonus. Like I now have, um, you know, tools that do automatic transcriptions of interviews, um, automatic translations that that provide sort of good first drafts for me. So it's a huge time saver for me right now. And it has not eliminated my business, which is a high end writing business. So even the people who are using AI, you know, who are using chat GPT to produce press releases and stuff like that, that's not my business. It might work fine, but if people want very high quality writing, they still need, they know, they still know they need a writer. And so it really hasn't affected my, but it obviously depends on what you're doing, but I would guess most people in self-employed situations offer something quite specific and specialized that AI well, artificial intelligence is a misnomer. It's not intelligent. So if you, it's, it's making like, for example, conversational uh, AI makes nice sentences. It doesn't tell you it lies. It doesn't tell you it doesn't know. It it makes up stuff, you know, and it, then it takes a good writer to, to clean it up. To clean it up yeah, that's, because that's, that's otherwise it's no good. Yeah. So I want to I want to say thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I love the book and I hope you have uh, a bigger success with this book than the one that sold 200,000 copies. Uh, (laughs) And it's a very uh, practical uh, book as well. And so I thank you for taking the time to do this and look forward to if you write another business book, having you back on again. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you next Friday. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.